Right then, if you have a Bible, why don't you find it and turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 16, right at the end of Mark's Gospel in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, uh, don't worry, you can either lean over the person next to you and look at theirs, or you'll see the scripture references on the screen in any case. You can look, follow there. We are arriving at the very end of Mark's Gospel now, chapter 16. In fact, Richard next week will round off the se- uh, series in its entirety. Today we're going to focus on Mark 16, verse 9 uh, to 15, which I will uh, read and then we'll get in together. If the blue buckets have done their jobs, I think they have. Fabulous. Right. Mark 16, verse 9 says, When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Can I hear a hallelujah? (laughs) Okay, Uh, we've been in Mark's gospel for some time now, um, and it is and has been all the way through Mark's announcement, Mark's explanation of the good news that is in Jesus. Good news, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And as the, the, the pace of the narrative has slowed right down. Our focus has been directed particularly to the death and the resurrection of Jesus as being the, the centerpiece, the, the source from which all this good news emerges. The death and the resurrection of Jesus ushers in a, a whole new way of relating to God by faith, a whole new covenant uh, before, we, well, we've seen all the way through the, the teachers of the law uh, and their, uh, their manner of approaching God is if we serve him enough, if we serve him well enough, and if we keep doing that for long enough, maybe at some point we have worked our way up to the point where we've paid the ransom. We've, we've paid our own way. We've paid for our own escape, as it were, from the clutches of sin and death. And now, because we've done enough, we can, we can know God. We can enjoy forgiveness and we can come into his kingdom. That's, that's what the old way suggests. But the good news of Jesus is that by his death and his resurrection, it's clear he has paid the ransom. He came and said, and we've seen it a number of times, looked at Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where he says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's the good news um, in a nutshell. That's what Mark wants us to understand, that now, not by us trying hard to please, us trying to serve, us trying to do lots of good works, But now, just by believing, we receive from God in Christ total forgiveness 
which leads us into a completely new life, a new identity as children of God, uh, as objects of mercy, with a completely new uh, future, a new destiny, being with him forever in glory. That's what we receive because he served us, because he came to us. And the resurrection is the proof, is the evidence that when Jesus gave his life, that payment was accepted so that we go free for those who believe. That's um, The resurrection was always what the prophets were, were pointing towards, the, the disciples and, and others have been slow to understand, but Jesus has predicted his death and his resurrection, and we've seen in Isaiah chapter 53 a number of times the explanation or the detail of what his suffering looked like. Actually, we see there as well in, in Isaiah 53 and verse 11, his prediction, he will be, uh, he'll be raised to life again. It says there, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. So, the destiny for him was not death as the conclusion. He would see the light of life, and he would provide justification for us. That's what uh, Paul explains as well in Romans chapter 4. In verse 25, Paul writes there, speaking of Jesus, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So we can stand before God with a clean conscience, having all our sin dealt with because Jesus died and he rose again. That is tremendously good news. And we've seen it here. Richard took us uh, last week through verses 1 to 8, um, the resurrection of, of Jesus. And now we head into this passage, which is, is good news, but it's an unusual passage for a couple of reasons. Firstly, you might see in your own Bible uh, comments that I see in my own, which is added by the, the, the editors or the translators of the Bible to explain that the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient sources witnesses do not have Mark 16, verse 9 to 20. That is true. The very earliest manuscripts do not have verse 9 to uh, 20. And some would point out what's also true is that in the Greek, the language, the vocabulary is different, so it's understood that this is very unlikely to have been written by Mark. Well, what's it doing here then? Well, it was included from the second century onwards, and we can see that, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of debate about it, but verse 8, even by Mark's standards, would seem to be a little bit of an abrupt ending to the good news. So you imagine, like, chapter 1, verse 1, let me tell you the good news about Jesus, and then we come into land, the, the conclusion, everybody, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. It, it seems a little bit cut short, and even the angel has said some things that might intrigue us. Go and tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So we're kind of expecting that we might hear about the women going and telling the disciples, and we might hear about the disciples hearing from Jesus themselves, but it's kind of cut short. So 
what this passage does, what verse 9 onwards, it provides us with a, a summary statement of things that we know happened after Jesus' resurrection. Why do we know that it happened? Well, this passage is consistent with other gospel writers. And then, in effect, it's giving us very briefly um, an invitation to consider some of what Luke says, some of what John says, and some of what Matthew says. Um, So we'll spend a bit of time uh, doing that. So it's an unusual passage, unusual in the sense as well that this great news has emerged. Jesus is alive. It's not over. And yet, as we've gone through verse 9 to 15, the prevailing theme or mood is of unbelief. Now, maybe we shouldn't be surprised by that if we've gone through Mark's gospel and noticed all the times when the disciples were incredibly slow to understand, slow on the uptake. Jesus spoke in fairly strong terms any number of times, saying, do you still not get it? Your heart's so hard. So maybe it's not unusual, maybe it's not surprising, but it's certainly clear. No one went to the tomb really early on the Sunday morning with party poppers and Prosecco, just waiting for the moment. You know, the sun's rising in the sky any moment now, any moment, uh, yeah, he's here! No one is like an early adopter. Um, no one is prone to the charge of being gullible. Even if they've remembered his prediction, what we're seeing time and time again, actually in three little snapshots, is what unbelief looks like. And, uh, and that's what we'll do. We'll spend a bit of time looking at these three brief glimpses into the disciples' unbelief. And we start with Mary Magdalene. She has already gone to the tomb in the morning, seen that the stone has been rolled away, that the tomb is empty, and that there's an angel in the tomb saying, He's not here. He's risen. But what we see from John's gospel is that her first response, her initial response, was anything but faith. So let's turn to uh, to John chapter 20, and we'll see in a little bit more uh, detail. It says in John chapter 20 and verse 1, early on the first day of the week, While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So that's consistent with what we know from Mark's gospel. Uh, John speeds on. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Bear in mind, at this point, she's had the encounter with the empty tomb. The stone is rolled away and she's heard an angel speak. Her explanation is, they have taken the Lord. Who are they? Maybe they are the Roman authorities. Maybe they are the Jewish authorities. Maybe they are dastardly grave robbers. But that's her understanding of the scene. Bewildered and confused, she went away. She's not getting it straight away. And what happens is she returns to the tomb with Peter and the other disciple. And again, they discover the empty tomb and no more. Whilst Peter and the other disciple leave the tomb, go back where they came from, 
Mary stays put. What do we read from verse 10 onwards then in John 12? The disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels. She's seeing two angels again. Okay, This is her second encounter with angels. Seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked the woman, why are you crying? She explains again, they've taken my Lord away. I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. She didn't recognize him to start with. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you put him and I'll get him. She's in a state, and we might understand, she's in a state of shock. She's, she's numbed by the events that she has witnessed. And she's then found an empty tomb. What's she to make of it? Well, it's like she gets locked into the only explanation she could possibly think of. They have taken my Lord away. That's what she repeats time and time again. They've taken him away. They've taken him away. Mary, have you heard the angels? No. They've taken him away. What have they done with him? Tell me where you put him. She's locked in. And this is what unbelief can look like. Missing the evidence of what God is doing or has done, what God is saying or has said. Instead, like Mary, if unbelief holds sway, we can become committed to or locked into the worst case scenario. It's the only way. I can't, no, that's it. No other explanation. And we could probably all put our hand up and, and confess to that in serious situations or in silly ones. I'll give you a trivial example personally. Uh, this has happened many times. Um, looking for something and not being able to find it. On one occasion, I needed to find my spirit level. I knew where I kept it. I knew where I expected to find it. And I went looking in the cellar of the house we lived at the time, and it wasn't there. I looked everywhere. Three places. I looked everywhere. It's not here. What am I going to do? So after a while, carefully, I assessed the situation and came up with the only possible explanation to this conundrum. Someone's stolen it. Someone has stolen my spirit level. They've ignored everything else, else in the house. They just wanted that. Maybe they've got like this vast collection of spirit levels in their own cellar because they've stolen them. Oh, what am I going to do? Hang on a minute, this could have happened like weeks ago. This could be a friend. This could be somebody that I know. And they've come in and they've walked out with my spirit level. Outrageous. The sage advice comes. Look again. Well, it's not there. Look again. All right. Oh, it, it was there all along. <laughs> it might have been slightly underneath something or slightly to the side of something or maybe it had just been moved to a different shelf. But actually, all these years later, I have the same spirit level and I have used it since. A trivial example, but it goes to show sometimes we can just get locked into an explanation 
and locked into the worst case scenario. And we can think then that unbelief and cynicism is, uh, does more justice to all the evidence available to us. But look, faith is not unreasonable. Actually, unbelief is unreasonable. Unreasonably, we're discounting, in Mary's case, the discovering the empty tomb, a number of angel encounters, and the rest of it. It's kind of, I don't, I'm not going to, I can't consider that, I'm only considering this narrow band of evidence. And sometimes for us, we're kind of trained from a young age to discount the miraculous. And God belongs in the category of myth and, uh, and feelings and other things that you can't really trust. So unless you can conduct an experiment on it and hold it, it's not real. That's what we kind of just, we breathe that air all the time in our society. So we're, we're kind of trained towards cynicism. Faith is not unreasonable. What happens is then Jesus says Mary's name, and Mary does what she hadn't done previously to that point. She, she turns towards him. She kind of gives Jesus her full attention. Jesus has already been speaking, but she's not recognized him. It's at this point when he says her name that she turns towards him and gives proper attention to what he said. Now things fit together. Now there's a different explanation. Now there's a better explanation. Jesus is alive. The worst case scenario is blown out of the water and faith has come. Now faith isn't naive optimism. It's not, well, now that faith has come, everything's going to work out exactly as I'd like it to. That's not faith either. That's naive optimism. Faith is God's alive. Jesus is on the throne. He's here. He's with us. And he's speaking. And he's true. And he's real. And he's reliable. And I can trust him. And he's good. That's what faith says. Our, sneckend, our, sneckend? our second snapshot of unbelief. See, what happens is Mary meets Jesus. Now she returns to the disciples and she shares the good news with them, and we saw in verse 11, they did not believe it. So what happens next? Well, there are two. Two of them decide to go for a walk. Two of them leave the group. And what this is doing is inviting us to turn to Luke's gospel in chapter 24, and perhaps you're already familiar with the account of the two disciples who leave Jerusalem and and walk to Emmaus, a fairly substantial uh, journey to walk, seven miles. And what they aren't aware of immediately is as they go for this walk, see, look, they're, they're drifting, unbelief has come, unbelief is the predominant mood, and now they're, they've left the group behind, and they're just going wherever they fancy. Um, they don't realize it straight away, but Jesus, the risen Savior, comes and joins them on that journey. And then the fact that they don't recognize him immediately means that we have this fascinating conversation we can look at in John, uh, sorry, in, in Luke chapter uh, 24 to see another kind of hallmark of, of unbelief. See, they're, they're discussing everything that's happened, but their heads are down. And as we look in, in this passage, we can see a little bit more. So verse 17 of Luke 24 
Uh, Jesus asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. No, what unbelief does is just bring gloom. One of them, named Cleopas, asked them, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? Just an aside, we often assume that these two disciples are men. It could be that Cleopas and his wife were heading home uh, to to Emmaus. They've been part of Jesus' uh, discipleship group, but now they're drifting. What things, he asked in verse 19, about Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. So, so hope is lost. We had hoped. But now that hope is gone. And this gives us another little view of, of unbelief. You see, unbelief is very good at looking backwards. It's very good at remembering. He was a prophet. He was mighty in power. I mean, they could go on for quite a while, couldn't they? Of All they'd seen him do, all they'd seen him uh, teach, the impact that he'd had in his, uh, in his ministry, uh, thus far. They could really warm to that theme. What a man, what a, what a prophet, what power. We had hoped. See, it's, back, it's very backwards uh, focused. See, unbelief says those were the days. Unbelief only sees glory in the past. Maybe in distant history. Church history. You might have that favorite, if only, if only I'd been there in the 1800s to be part of a tremendous revival. Wow, wouldn't that be awesome? Or maybe even in our own personal experience, we can just look back. We're very good at remembering. That's what God's done in the past. That's what I experienced when I was young. I was having a conversation in our uh, core group uh, this week, and um, bear with me for a moment. I'll get to the point in a minute. Um, I, I was saved about the age of 10. I was filled with the Spirit about the age of 15. Uh, that was in the mid-90s. Uh, that's like prehistory. Um, I'm just chatting about what that time was like. Um, either going to a big summer Bible conference or the part, uh, church meeting that I was a part of, um, a meeting of the church that I was a part of. And you honestly went knowing that anything could happen and crazy things would happen and uh, powerful manifestations would, um, would take, take place. People, uh, I, I can remember in the Anglican church I went to uh, for a while, just a group came from St. Andrew's Chorley Wood, if that means anything. I can't remember what they did. They just like strummed a guitar and spoke about Jesus. And this, just right across the back row, all the disaffected youth of the church were there, just under the weight of just conviction of sin and God getting hold of us. I think this is, that hadn't happened. Um, other occasions when the church I went to uh, a little bit later on, really crummy hall, but in that, in that hall, someone had got like some gaffer tape and put it down on the floor. Big line. And then it'd be like another six foot, and you'd get another big line, and another six foot, all the way from the front to the back of the hall. Why was that? Well, it's because we knew, we could anticipate, that when we moved the chairs away to respond to God, you know, a few people had been to Toronto and caught the fire. Well, they had it. And, um, and so you knew that if you were responding, 
stand on the gaffer tape because then, then there's enough room that when the power of God comes on you and you can but only fall over, uh, you won't hit somebody else. So that, that was just what was happening. Um, crazy time. People laughing just for ages. People shaking. People falling over. A lot of visible demonstrations of, of God's power. Lots of fruit from it. Just passion, a time of zeal. It wasn't all fantastic, actually. Immaturity in the mix. And we're all prone, all the time, just to kind of go for outward results, aren't we? And I can remember going to a meeting and some guest speaker coming, and you know, here's another man of power for the hour. And um, I thought, well, maybe the guy just felt under pressure to get results. And what, were, what did that mean? A successful meeting was one where everyone was on the floor. So what did he do? Lined us up, adopt a position of prayer. Now, it's not difficult. If someone's doing this right now, it's, it's like, you can just put your hand on somebody's head, someone stand behind, standing behind them, and push them over. <laughs> it's not the power of God. It's just immature. Um, so things like that were happening as well, but that was just the expectations. Like, crazy, brilliant, wonderful. But it's easy just to go, well, those were the days. And if only we had it and we lost it and something like that, oh, and church life got a bit colorful and crazy and leaders started falling out of themselves. And oh, it was good for a while. If only we could go back. No. Unbelief says, oh, it was wonderful back then. Oh, nothing's much is happening now. Can't, can't see forward very far. And this is what's happening for these disciples. They're very good at looking back. They're not very good at being right in the here and now, recognizing Jesus and looking forward. Well, why do I say that? They can say all the right stuff. After this moment where they've said in verse 21, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel, they go on. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. So they know what Jesus had predicted after three days, on the third day, I'm going to rise again. In addition, get this, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Get this, then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. What are you doing on the road to Emmaus? It's like just drifting. We had hoped. All this stuff has come to our attention. We just can't figure it out. It's just unbelief. And we don't want to just only see glory in the old days. And let's be, let's be encouraged from what we know in Scripture, what you might know from church history, and what you might know from your own personal experience. Let's, let's allow that to fuel our faith. But it's like driving a car. We glance backwards and we look forwards. We glance in the mirror that's where I've come from. This is where we're going. Unbelief grinds to a halt because it's not looking forwards. If you're looking backwards, there'll come a point where you just think, actually, the safe thing to do is to stop. Or the safe thing to do is just drift. A bit aimless. That's unbelief. Faith is not fixated on the past. It's looking forward and it's saying, now is the time. Not those were the days, but these are the days. 
Now, does that mean we need to start putting gaffer tape down on the floor, moving all the chairs away? And No, God is God, and he will do what he needs to and wants to and has planned to and has purposed to today and tomorrow and for the rest of this year and beyond. Why? Because he's on the throne, because Jesus is alive, and he's by his spirit amongst us. So we're not just like anxiously craving the previous move of God. We're saying he's with us right now. These are the days. Now is the time. So what happens to those two is suddenly their their eyes are opened after this lengthy conversation with Jesus. They see who he is. And where they've been drifting, they get that new sense of direction. We need to go back to Jerusalem. Where they've drifted away from from the other believers, other disciples, that's where I need to be. Let's go back. Let's tell them. And let's wait to see what Jesus does next. Why? Because he is alive. So they rush back to Jerusalem immediately, and then returning to Mark, we get this third snapshot of unbelief. We find out in verse 13. These returned and reported it to to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Maybe that's poetic justice, because these two went for a walk having heard Mary, and they didn't believe Mary. Now the two from the Emmaus Road are coming back, and lo and behold, they're not believed either. So, but just... Just pick this up. The 11. The ones who've been closest to Jesus. They've now had the report from the women, presumably, saying, empty tomb, guys. Young angel sent to deliver the message. He's alive. What are we to make of it? Then Mary comes back. I've seen him. He's alive. He's spoken to me. Ugh. Then the Emmaus Road couple come back and say, like, we were having a chat for ages, and then we realized it was him, and our hearts were burning within us. They get back, and they tell the 11, and the 11 go, nah. What accounts for that? Well, they're mourning and weeping, understandably. We see that in verse 10. They are devastated and distraught by Jesus' death. Perhaps they're also devastated and distraught by their own abject failings. Jesus, back in chapter 3, said, I'm choosing you to be with me that I might send you out to preach. And in his darkest moment, these are the guys who flee. They desert Jesus. Peter denies him three times, but they've all disowned him they're nowhere to be seen. It's Joseph of Arimathea who buries the body. It's the women who are there at the crucifixion. They are nowhere. They're hiding away. Here they are. You can read more of the details in, in either Luke or John. But they are hiding away for fear of the Jews and perhaps preoccupied with just how much they messed up. They can't imagine that changing or lifting So all this news of Jesus being alive gets short shrift. It's a scene of utter gloom and depression, but what's the most depressing thing about it is their unbelief is a choice. They have decided. It's not that they can't believe. It's they've decided they won't believe. It's become willful. Now, why, why did they choose unbelief? Maybe it's because they felt sorry for themselves. 
and their own uh, weaknesses. Maybe it's self-protection. They had hoped, like the two on the Emmaus Road. They don't want to hope and be disappointed uh, again. Maybe there's a preference somehow for bad news. It's not really, really comfortable and really exciting, but there's something about bad news which is just that bit more familiar and therefore perhaps just a bit easier to deal with. It's bad news today, it will be bad news tomorrow, and it will be bad news after that. At least we know what we're dealing with. And therefore, at least we are a little bit more in control of the situation. Maybe it's just a bit easier to remember a fallen hero than it is to live with a risen saviour. He might make demands on you. He might do something unpredictable. That feels less safe. That feels more risky. And so we can, we can sometimes prefer and choose unbelief as, because it feels more secure, feels more comfortable, like a, a worn-out pair of slippers that don't do anything anymore. They're just a risk. How can slippers be a risk? I'm not sure. That wasn't in the notes. Um, But unbelief is stubborn. They've decided not to believe. Faith in a risen saviour does take us into uncharted territory where we are not in charge. Maybe that's why sometimes we choose unbelief instead. But do you remember, there was a, uh, a, a man, a father, had a son. We, see, we met him earlier in Mark chapter 9. And his son, in some way, was influenced by an evil spirit. And that had a number of, uh, of grim uh, effects on his life. And so the father brings his boy to the disciples whilst Jesus is up the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, please, in the name of Jesus, can you deal with it? And they, like, muster up all their impressive uh, whatever and fail, um, as we might expect. And then Jesus comes down the mountain and he does deal with it. You remember the, the conversation that Jesus has with that man in Mark chapter uh, 9. It says in verse 20, So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has it been like this? From childhood, he answered. It's often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do something, anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. It's a very gentle rebuke if it's a rebuke at all. But notice the man's response. I do believe. Help me overcome or help me in my unbelief. It's honesty. There's, there's not, no penalties for honesty. It's like I'm, I'm wrestling here. I'm battling. I'm battling for faith. I do believe in who you are. I do believe in what you're capable of. But sometimes unbelief starts to encroach. That's battling. The sadness of the situation here at the end of Mark's gospel is the disciples are not battling. They're not saying, I believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. They're saying, we're choosing not to believe. That is really bleak. That is really sad. And so they get a stronger rebuke. They are stubbornly refusing to believe. I wonder, 
in hearing this today? Are there any of us who need to hear the same rebuke? It could be that for some, you've heard the gospel, you've heard the good news, you're persuaded that Jesus is real, real person, real man, that he is really God, he is who he says he was. The only reasonable explanation for the events of his death and resurrection is that he is God's son and that he is now alive. But something is holding you back from believing. It could be you've just chosen not to on account of it just feels a bit unsafe. Like to put your life in someone else's hands. I don't know what will happen. That, that takes me into uncharted territory. It'll be totally unpredictable. What will life look like if I receive Jesus and give my life to him? So choosing unbelief? Don't stay there. Don't stay there. Or perhaps it's for those of who've been disciples for a long time. And whether it's a disappointment here, something unexpected there, maybe just encroached over time, there was no massive single event. It's just actually the passing of time, the passing of time doesn't necessarily make us more mature. doesn't necessarily give us stronger faith. Sometimes the passing of time means we've just become more cynical. Cynical is unbel- cynicism is unbelief trying to be clever. It's, it's, it's unbelief saying, I'm, I'm a, I've, I've got a better perspective. I'm, I'm aware of more. So, so, so you preach on that, but I've, I've heard that passage before. I've heard that truth before. Didn't make a difference then. It doesn't really make a difference for me now. I've just heard it before. That prophecy, I heard that before as well. Loads of times. You want, do you know the first person who shared that prophecy? Not in this room. You know, that's, I've got extra information, and that means that I'm wiser. No, you got hard-hearted. Or I do, you know, that's, that's the possibility. That's why Jesus, when he, he has that encounter with the, chi- with the children, doesn't he? He just wants to bless the children. And in, and in chapter 10, he's saying, it's, it's people like this to whom the kingdom belongs. You need to be like a child if you want to enter it. So we sometimes say, don't we, on a Sunday... We're all together, all ages together, and that means that the children, guys, you later on, you can tap your parents on the shoulder and say, Mum, Dad, grown up, I've got a question. There's something I don't understand. On the assumption that it's the grown up who does understand, the grown up says, well, well, let me explain things to you, son, because I'm wiser, I have more information, and I've been around a bit longer. Maybe, actually, the kingdom of God, and this funny little pattern we have as a church, is for this reason. That when the grown-ups don't understand something, they can tap the child on the shoulder and say, sorry, I don't really get this. Can you explain the nature of the kingdom again to me? Can you explain the nature of faith to me again? Because what does Jesus do? He says, which of you fathers, if your son asks for, it will give him a snake or a scorpion? If you then, though you're good, know how to, get, how to give good gifts, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? You need to be like children. You need to ask like children. You need to have faith like children. You need to enter the kingdom like children. To be childlike. The problem for the disciples is up until this point, they've thought too highly of themselves. Now, when they're at the very lowest point, are they ready to enter into the kingdom of God? Because they realize, by ourselves, we're complete failures. Right now, Jesus can work with you. That's what's so encouraging about Jesus' rebuke. That's why it's good news. This is why this passage is good news. Because Jesus does not abandon them. 
Jesus doesn't turn up, disappointed that they didn't have the party poppers ready, and say, sorry guys, that's it, I'm moving on, I'm alive. And there's this guy called Joseph of Arimathea, and Nicodemus, and even, would you believe it, a Roman centurion. And uh, I'm going to start again with just them. Because I've worked with you for three years, and all the way through you've not really believed it. So, I'm moving on. Now, no doubt, Jesus did have plans. The risen saviour does have Joseph, Nicodemus, and the centurion amongst his followers. But, what this rebuke means is that this currently sorry, sorry bunch of disciples are not being written off. This says a tremendous amount about God's faithfulness, his grace, and his power to persevere with us when we realized how weak we are. That rebuke is warranted. When any of us are rebuked by God, what's also warranted is repentance. That's not to ignore the situation. It's not to ignore the shock and the grief and the disappointments and the lost hurt and the sense of drifting. It's not to ignore the story. It's not to ignore the realities of what they've experienced, but it's to say, rather than just explain all of that away or take years trying to work it all through, analyze the past, what it re- and therefore take years of rehab for this bunch to come back into ministry. All that's required, really, is that they repent, say, forgive me for my unbelief. I chose not to trust you. I chose not to believe you. I chose to harden my heart. I chose to keep control. I chose to drift away. We might think, goodness, it's going to take a long time to turn this group around. They're not a promising bunch at all. But look what the rebuke is about. It's not leading to years of rehab. 40 days, they're going to see 3,000 people saved. That commission in the first place, right, guys, I'm choosing you to come and be with me that I might send you out to preach. In the next verses, it's going to be repeated. What are you doing in unbelief? Come on, we've got, we've got somewhere to go. We've got plans. I've got purposes. I'm doing them through you, so buck up. <laughs> See things afresh. What can God do in just 40 days? Oh, it's going to take years to turn it around. No, it's not. It just takes faith. In God, childlike, obedient faith. So let's not be locked into worst-case scenario thinking. Sometimes it's understandable that we might get there. Sometimes it's just plain unreasonable, like me and my spirit level. Let's not be focused just on the past. The glory days, what God's done in the wonderful, isn't it? If only now. Look, he is the Lord. And he's the Lord right now. Like I said, cynicism pretends to be wise, but it's just unbelief. Let's not refuse to believe the good news. Let's not refuse to believe God's truth. Sometimes it can be a simple matter. I say simple. I don't feel God loves me. I don't feel that it's true. Well, when did your feelings trump the word of God for authority? So you take your feelings and you say, Lord, I know that I'm listening to this stuff. It might be a case of just saying, Lord God, 
Help me to start wrestling again. Help me, start do, help me to start doing battle. We're not kind of disappearing into naive optimism. We're not trying to just adopt faith like it's pretense. Maybe it's a case of actually, I need to get back in the battle. The battle for my mind, the battle for truth, the battle that the gospel trumps how I might feel when I wake up tomorrow morning. That we open our eyes to see the risen Jesus. That God, let's allow him to fill our vision. He is alive. And therefore, gaffer tape or no gaffer tape, anything is possible. He's seated on the throne of heaven. He sent his Holy Spirit. And he invites us into the same commission that he's about to give or to repeat to this group of disciples. It's really, it's all about him. Faith fixes its eyes on Jesus. Unbelief sees how sorry I am. Faith looks at him. Faith believes him. Faith gets a a group of people galvanized with, with direction again. And faith means we look and we move forward. Amen? Amen. Preach it.